Wow, talk about slow walking. We're about to slow walk through a passage of Dante's Inferno that is like few others we have so far encountered. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are slow walking, as I said, through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the first canticle, Inferno. We are in the eighth circle of hell, the giant circle of fraud. We are in the eighth of the evil pouches of the Malabolgia that make up this circle of hell. And we are about to come into a conversation between Dante the Pilgrim and a soul who has shown up in this evil pouch after Ulysses. I want to tell you that this is one of the tougher passages in Inferno. It reminds me a great deal of passages in Paradiso because of its complexity, its opacity to a modern reader. This passage is why many people can't get through the Paradiso because it reads a lot like what we're about to encounter. So a lot of commentators blip over this passage. They say, oh, it's just about politics in Romagna or, <laughs> or oh, it's just about a bunch of stuff that goes on in Romagna that Guido de Montefeltro wants to know about. Well, true enough. But you know what? We're doing this thing. We're slow walking and we might as well go ahead and just do it. We might as well sit in this passage for a while. This is going to get a little bit tedious because there is a lot of information to impart. I'm going to trust that that's the task we're at. Let me remind you of where we've been. We've been with Ulysses. We've seen him blow out across the globe in his mad flight. We've seen him go down in a whirlpool. He has now left us dismissed by Virgil and another of the tongues of fire has shown up in this pit. The second speaker, oh, this is complicated, but the third person, right? Because there were Ulysses and Diomedes in that first flame. So two people there, but just one speaker, Ulysses. And now here comes another flame with just one guy, one speaker, Guido de Montefeltro. We're going to talk more about him because this passage bears in on his career. As I say, it's complicated. It's Canto 27. It's lines 31 through 57. My English language translation. Have I set this up enough? Up. I scared you enough about this thing? <laughs> Hope not. Stick around. It's kind of fun to just go through the history of what's going on here. Let's get to it. This is, again, my English translation of Dante's response when Guido says, Is Romagna at war or at peace? I was still so intent to hear what he said, so bent over toward him, that my guide gave me a poke in the side and said, Talk away! This one's Italian. And I, who already had an answer set to go, without any delay, started in by saying, O spirit who's concealed down in there, your Romagna is not, nor has it ever been, without war down in the hearts of its tyrants. But when I left, it wasn't in the middle of a battle. Ravenna is just as it's been for years. The eagle of Polenta broods over it so that it covers Cervia with its wings. The locale that made it through the long siege and turned the French into a bloody mess now finds itself underneath the green claws. The old and young mastiffs of Verrucchio, who fiercely and badly ruled over Montana, 
Britannia morph their teeth into drill bits. The cities on the Lamone and the Santerno are ruled by the little lion in the white den who changes sides, whether north or south. And the town that's bathed by the Savio, just as it sits between the mountain and the plain, so too it lives between tyranny and freedom. So now I beg you, tell us who you are. Don't be as recalcitrant with me as others have been with you. Also, your name can hold its head up in the world. That's the passage, and you can already see the difficulties. Green claws, <laughs> mastiffs, strange circumlocutions. Dante is speaking a bit in code here. The pilgrim is to this figure, Guido da Montefeltro, but he's also revealing the politics of the current moment. We want to talk through that and how that all works in the passage. It's complicated, but you know what? I figure this is what we're doing. We're doing a slow walk, so we might as well take this for all it's worth. The passage begins at line 31 with, I was still so intent to hear what he said, so bent over toward him, that my guide gave me a poke in the side and said, talk away, this one's Italian. Again, we have to remark that Dante is, what do I want to say, curiously, anxiously, eagerly attracted to the figures in this pouch. Remember, he bent over the pouch and almost fell in when it came to Ulysses, and now in this case, he's still bent over just staring down at these flames. What is it about these figures that attracts Dante so much? Why is he so pulled toward these figures who use language for narcissistic or selfish reasons, who in fact use language to manipulate others? (laughs) I don't have to draw that out for you, do I? It's called being a writer. But perhaps there's more to it than that, especially with this figure, with Guido, because this is very close to the now, to what's happening in Dante's day, and especially what's happening at the time the poem is set in the year 1300. Let's look at two nice little details in those opening lines. I was still so intent to hear what he said, the passage again starts, so bent over toward him that my guide gave me a poke in the side and said, talk away, this one's Italian. First, that's a nice little detail, a poke in the side. Here's Virgil standing there. The pilgrim is bent over, staring at this flame who has just said, you know, hey, don't be be irritated if I want to talk to you. I mean, I should be the one irritated. I'm the one burning up. Oh, this whiny guy. Good grief. And the pilgrim, he's staring at him, and Virgil pokes him in the side, nudges him, and says, okay, come on. This isn't a time for sightseeing. This is a time, well, apparently for conversation. That poke in the side is a really nice detail. I'm going to blip right over how a shade Virgil could poke a physical body, Dante, in the side. We're going to just blip right on past that, but say it's a nice little realistic detail. And then Virgil says, talk away this one's Italian. If we had a nice little detail, now we have a nice little dismissal. It seems as if Virgil just kind of uh, swats this guy away, says, what you deal with him? He's Italian. Remember, Virgil had wanted so badly to deal with Ulysses. Virgil told the pilgrim Dante to be quiet and not 
talk to Ulysses because Ulysses is a Greek and could very well look down on the Pilgrim Dante for his Italian ways, for his modern ways. Virgil basically says, let me deal with him. And of course, we tied that, if you remember, back to Epic and the writing of Epic and Ulysses and all that stuff. But here, Virgil is much more dismissive. There's two things possibly going on here. One, this is a modern figure. And so Dante should deal with the modern figure because the modern figure is out of Dante's world. And two, if you remember in the last episode of this podcast, I told you that this figure, Guido, uses the word mo, the Florentine word for now, twice in contrast to his quoting Virgil, where he uses istra, the Lombard dialect word for now. It could be that Virgil is just piqued by all of that and that Virgil thinks, oh, good God, look at this guy, thinking I'm some kind of Lombard <laughs> hick. I love the notion of epic Virgil being a Lombard hick, thinking I'm some kind of hick from the hinterlands. So you deal with this one. I, I dealt with the big one, the classical one. <laughs> You take it from here with this guy. Either way, it is a nice little dismissal. Let's go on in the passage. And I, who already had an answer set to go without any delay, started in by saying, O spirit who's concealed down in there, your Romagna is not, nor has it ever been, without war down in the hearts of its tyrants. But when I left, it wasn't in the middle of a battle. Before we talk about what Dante says here about Romagna, let's notice one word in his answer, tyrants. That seems a very important word because he's identifying Romagna with a certain kind of political leader, a tyrant. This is a loaded word. Gregory the Great himself claimed that tyrants were one who rules a commonwealth unlawfully. Dante, in his own work, The Monarchia, a work about civic society, writes that tyrants do not follow laws for the common good, but attempt to twist them for their own benefit. Dante uses tyrants as an example of an unbalanced world, a world in which political power of the state is not balanced by the power of the papacy and the church. That is Dante's great dream, that the two are in some kind of balancing act with each other. This tyrants, then, is a loaded term for Dante, meaning that there is no balance to the political rule here. Of course, these very tyrants <laughs> are the ones who Machiavelli will later call princes, but that's a little bit farther down the road from us right here. But we're basically talking about a kind of political, well, in the modern world, we might say fascism. Now, let's say a little bit before we jump into the complications of the passage about why it's complicated. Dante is about to discuss the fate of seven cities in Romagna. And if you know the modern region of Emilia-Romagna, we're talking similar, a similar idea, more easterly than that in Dante's day. Not exactly that, but you're near close to what we're talking about for this passage. We should say that the passage that I read you already is incredibly elliptical. A Ravenna, Polenta, a Brooding, Green Claws, right? All these weird references. A little lion in a white den. These things all seem extraordinarily opaque 
opaque to us as modern readers. They seem elliptical, and let me say that they would be much, much less so in Dante's day. Dante is identifying a series of rulers in Romagna by their heraldic iconography. He's talking about their shield iconography. He's talking about their flag iconography. He's talking about what represents these various tyrannical families. So it's not quite as unclear in a medieval context as it would be now. It's, uh, how do I want to say, insider talk. If you know the politics of central Italy in the 1300s, late 1200s, early 1300s, then you know exactly what's going on here. If you, like me, live quite a bit later, you might be at a loss. Let us also say that Dante is talking elliptically because these are powerful warlords and many of them, in fact, control Dante's own fate or will come to control his own fate. Many of them, in fact, will take over the care of Dante in exile in later life, and they could make his life very difficult right now in exile. So talking carefully around them is one way out of some political difficulties for the exiled Dante. But again, most readers would know exactly who's being referred to here. And thirdly, we should make a third point about why this is so difficult. The whole thing takes on a kind of apocalyptic overtone. Remember we've talked about this apocalyptic language about beasts and virgins and beasts with ten heads or seven heads and virgins astride them and all this kind of pyrotechnics of apocalyptic language. Well, it's weird and a bit ironic that the politics of Romagna is put in a rather apocalyptic discourse. Think about that for a second. You're taking very, very localized politics here, something Guido da Montefeltro would be very interested in. You're taking very localized politics and you're blowing it out into this language that is reminiscent of the biblical book of Daniel or Zechariah or the New Testament book of the Revelation or Apocalypse of St. John. There's a way in which this passage lofts Guido's local concerns up into a world as august and as highbrowed as Ulysses himself. Let's look at actually the passages that go down through these various cities. I'm going to start with the first three lines at line 40 through 42, the first tercet. Ravenna is just as it's been for years now. The eagle of Polenta broods over it so that it covers Cervia with its wings. What is being mentioned here is the ruling family in Ravenna, that is the Guelph leader Guido Vecchio da Polenta. Guido Vecchio da Polenta rules over Rovena until 1310. This piece of Inferno may be being written right about the time Guido <laughs> cashes it in, but nonetheless, this is an important family to Dante. These are the Polentas who will eventually take him in and take care of him at the end of his life. And you'll notice the positive language. The eagle, that's part of their heraldic sign of Polenta, 
polenta broods. You know, like a chicken nourishes, protects. There's a benevolence in the word, broods over Ravenna, so that it covers Chervia. Chervia is a town about 22 kilometers or 14 miles southeast of Ravenna, famous for its salt flats, broods over Chervia with its wings. It protects it. Again, the emblem of the polenta family is a red eagle on a field of gold. But there's something else you should know about this eagle of polenta, this Gelf leader, Guido Vecchio da Polenta. He is the father of Francesca. You know, Francesca up there in the circle of lust. And in fact, he is the grandfather of Guido da Polenta, the new Guido of Polenta, who will take Dante in at the end of his life. The Polentas took Cervia from Guido da Montefeltro, this flame standing in front of them. They took Cervia from Guido in 1283. So this is a moment in which the pilgrim prods Guido with one of his losses. Okay, on to the next three lines. The locale that made it through the long siege and turned the French into a bloody mess now finds itself underneath green cloths. He's talking about Forli, the city of Forli, a central town in Romagna. Guido led it to withstand this very Guido, the flame standing right here, led as a mercenary, led the town of Forli to withstand a siege by the French and Italian troops led by Pope Martin IV in 1283. The town of Forli was turned over to the Odolafi family and they ruled Forli and their heraldic symbol was the upper half of a green lion and the green claws would be quite prominent in the upper half of a green lion. So the locale that made it through the long siege and turned the French into a bloody mess now finds itself underneath the green claws. That is the Odolafi family. Dante probably doesn't know, Dante the Pilgrim, probably doesn't know yet that this is Guido da Montefeltro who defeated the French in this bloody mess of a battle when he's giving him this answer to war and peace in Romagna, which means Guido would be very flattered by these three lines. If Guido would be piqued by the loss of Cervia in the previous three lines, he would be flattered here because he played a distinct part as a mercenary in keeping Forley under Ghibelline control. Now, passing on to the next three lines. The old and young mastiffs of Verrucchio, who fiercely and badly ruled over Montagna, morphed their teeth into drill bits. How's that? That's pretty wild. Who he's talking about here are two rulers, Malatesta da Verrucchio, who died in 1312. He defeated the Ghibellines, and his heraldic symbol was a mastiff. He defeated the Ghibellines for the control of Rimini. So although he comes from Verrucchio, Rimini in Romagna is now under his control. It says they fiercely, that is he and his son, they fiercely and badly ruled over Montagna. That's Montagna 
de Parchitati. He was the head of the Ghibellines. He was killed by Malatestino in the defeat of the Ghibellines. One of the things that's interesting about bringing up these figures here is they also appear elsewhere in comedy. These Verrucchios, particularly Malatesta da Verrucchio, who dies in 1312, his oldest son, Malatestino, who kills Montagna, his oldest son takes over in 1312. His second son, Gianciotto is Francesca's husband, Francesca up there in the circle of lust. And his third son, Paolo, is Francesca's lover. So Francesca is written all over this passage. Her father is here, her in-laws are here. She's all behind this. And isn't it interesting that behind this bloody mess of tyrants and war in Romagna, Francesca, the symbol of lust, is sitting back there, sort of in the background. And if you know the history, you know that her position there leads to an irony underneath this passage. I mean, these people, the old and young mastiffs of Verrucchio, Malatesta da Verrucchio and his son, Malatesta, Testino da Verrucchio are so hard edged that they morph their teeth into drill bits. I mean, that's how hard they rule. In fact, Montagna, this Montagna de Parcitati, when it says he badly, fiercely and badly ruled over him, they treated him extremely poorly as a prisoner of war. And the old man kept asking his son, what'd you do with Montagna? What'd you do with Montagna? Um, this kid, Malatestino, keeps saying, oh, I put him in a prison. And he couldn't even swim out to the ocean. And the father keeps saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Until finally the son goes and just outright murders Montagna in jail and does away with him because of his father's discontent with the way he has not dispatched him forthright. Next three lines. The sittings on the Lamone, that would be Faenza. Faenza is about 31 kilometers or 19 miles southeast of Ravenna, and it sits on the river Lamone. And the Santerno, that would be Imola, which is about oh, 34, 35 kilometers or 21 miles southeast of Bologna. These two cities are ruled by the little lion in the white den who changes sides, whether north or south. The rationale here, the explanation here, is this is Maginardo de Pagani. And Maginaro de Pagani uses a lion, a blue lion, on a white shield as his heraldic symbol. He is notorious for having fought as a Ghibelline when he's in the northern parts of Tuscany and Romagna, and then as a Guelph in the south really bad tyrant. You can't even please him because he's on both sides and you can't even predict which side he's going to be on. This is 
bad rulership in Dante's world. Let me tell you about one little translation problem in this passage. I said that Machinardo, the guy of the little lion in the white den, that guy changes sides, whether north or south. And you should know that the Florentine actually reads, he changes sides from summer to winter. It's a little bit funky to translate. I followed the early commentators in this who claimed that the reference here is that in the northern parts of Italy, it's cold, and in the southern parts, it's warmer. And so the reference here to summer and winter is not a temporal reference, that he didn't change sides with the seasons, but he changed sides with geographic locales. I'm not 100% sure of that, but it is certainly what 100% of the old original commentators thought about this passage. Okay, <laughs> last bit and the seventh down. And the town that's bathed by the Savio, the river Savio, that's Cesena. Just as it sits between the mountain and the plain, so too it lives between tyranny and freedom. There's an interesting little point here that I find actually fascinating. In Dante's day, Cesena actually sat on an upslope. The entire town was kind of on the upslope of this hill and partly out on the plain and partly down on the hill. In modern days, the Savio has so eroded the landscape that now Cesena is basically all on the plain because of that erosion. I find that all absolutely fascinating. Anyway, it was ruled by Galasso de Montefeltro, Guido's cousin. Apparently, Galasso was more of a boss than a tyrant because he allowed Cesena a certain level of freedom that the other towns in this list don't get. And so it says, so it sits between the mountains and the plains, so too it lives between tyranny and freedom. It kind of teeters on the whim of this Galasso figure. Who would be Guido de Montefeltro's cousin? Which would make Guido rather, again, pleased in hell to hear that his family is doing okay. All right, let's say a couple things about these complicated relations among these cities. Dante is being very careful to set his poem in 1300. Some of these figures are already dead as Inferno is being revised maybe for the last time. And yet Dante is at some pains to make sure that what is true in 1300 is true in this passage. Some of these uh, towns have changed hands. They've changed leaders over time. But again, this bit is right for 1302. We should say Dante again is playing a very dangerous game. By talking about all these figures, he is an exile. He is on the run. And talking about these figures could very well make them irritated at him. Remember, Guido says, don't be irritated with me if I want to talk to you. Well, here's a bunch of people who could be really irritated at the pilgrim Dante when he gets back to Earth because he's basically called them tyrants, even the polentas who take him on later in life. So I should just tell you that although this passage is opaque, Although it's difficult, although I've told you all about politics and wars in Romagna in the late 1200s and the vying for control and the way that the whole region is sliding into tyranny because it's being lost to papal control and being taken over merely by civic tyrants 
tyrants. Again, Dante's great hope is that there is a balance between the church and the state, and each holds the other in check, but these are all sliding into tyranny. This fear of the slide into tyranny is so well-crafted into this passage that you might think it's beautiful when, in fact, you should go back to that word. It's not without war down in the hearts of its tyrants. That is the key bit here, because in the end, as we will discover, Guido da Montefeltro would like to be a tyrant. Instead, he's just a petty functionary. But we got to wait for the next episode of the podcast to get there. Let's finish off this passage. So now the pilgrim says, I beg you, tell us who you are. Don't be as recalcitrant with me as others have been with you. Also, your name can hold its head up high in the world. This is so interesting to me. After all of this political history of Romagna, and remember that Farinata tells us back in Canto 10 that the damned cannot see the present very well, but they can see the future. Farinata says, and I quote, we see as one does in bad light the things that are distant from us. So much the highest leader still shines for us. When they approach or become present, our intellect turns empty. That's the key here. The damned cannot understand the present world. They can't see it. They have no access to it, but they do see the future all the way out to the apocalypse, and they can predict the apocalypse itself, although they don't know what's going on around here. Thus, Guido de Montefeltro's desire to know what's going on. But let's just say, after all of this political morass, after all this bloody mess, after all this changing hands of various cities, it comes down to an appeal to personal vanity. <laughs> Don't be as recalcitrant with me as others have been with you. Also, your name can hold its head up high in the world. I mean, good God, the world is coming apart. It's fracturing and cracking in every direction. But hey, buddy, you could still be famous up there. So tell me who you are and I'll make sure your name lives on. Man, is human vanity at no ends? Can it never come to its fruition? And apparently the answer is not, because Guido is going to engage in some of the most wildly comedic, even funny, personal vanity in all of comedy. Before we leave this passage, let's read the whole thing one more time. And in fact, let's go back to the opening of Canto 27, and let's read it all the way down through this passage, lines one all the way down to 57, where we stop today, so that we can get the sweep of the passage. I'm not going to do any voices or sound effects or anything. Let's just listen to it and listen to how the flow of the conversation sets in before Guido delves into his giant monologue. At this point, the flame straightened up and turned quiet, intent on speaking no more. It then moved away from us with the go-ahead from my sweet poet. Just as another one who came up right behind made our sight fasten onto its tip because of the garbled noise that could be heard from it, as the Sicilian bull, whose first bellows came from the cries of the guy who made it and served him right, the one whose file had molded its form as it used to bellow with the voice of the tormented so that 
Although it was made of brass, it seemed impaled in pain. So having no escape or outlet from its origins in the fire, the agonizing words were converted into their own language. But once those sounds had made it up to the flame's tip, giving it the same flutterings that had come from the tongue that had been their passage, we heard it say, Hey you, to whom I direct my voice, and who just now spoke Lombard, when you said, Be on your way now, I'm not holding you anymore. Although I may have gotten here a bit late, may it not irritate you to stop and talk to me. You see, I'm not irritated, and I'm the one burning up. If only just now, into this blind world you fell from up in the sweet land of Italy, from the place where I packed up all my guilt... Tell me if Romagna has peace or war. You see, I came from the mountains between Urbino and the ridge from which the Tiber springs. I was still so intent to hear what he said, so bent over toward him, that my guide gave me a poke in the side and said, Talk away, this one's Italian. And I, who already had an answer set to go without any delay, started in by saying, O oh, spirit who's concealed down in there, your Romagna is not, nor has it ever been, without war down in the hearts of its tyrants. But when I left, it wasn't in the middle of a battle. Ravenna is just as it's been for years now. The eagle of Polenta broods over it so that it covers Cervio with its wings. The locale that made it through the long siege and turned the French into a bloody mess now finds itself underneath the green claws. The old and young mastiffs of Verrucchio, who fiercely and badly ruled over Montagna, morph their teeth into drill bits. The cities of the Lamone and the Santerno are ruled by the little lion in the white den who changes sides whether south or north and the town that's bathed by the Savio just as it sits between the mountain and the plain so too it lives between tyranny and freedom so now I beg you Tell us who you are. Don't be as recalcitrant with me as others have been with you. Also, your name can hold its head high up in the world. You got to subscribe to this podcast and you got to stick with me because Guido has got to return the favor by telling who he is. And he's going to tell the story not only of his rather at times lackluster life he may have been a mercenary but man was he sniveling he is at times lackluster at times quite glorious life he's also going to tell the rather funny tale of his own death well funny at least if you're a medieval could you please rate this podcast if you could give it a rating if you're listening to this on audible or on an apple platform that would be brilliant thank you very much for doing this again i am unsupported and any help i can get by ratings just helps me keep going otherwise come back because guido's got to talk i'm mark scarborough and this is walking with dante